Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover that for Slate. Uh, This is the Saturday edition, and we are coming right now to the end of one of the single most important weeks in American legal history. Special counsel Jack Smith released an indictment describing how former President Donald J. Trump kept highly classified documents concerning nuclear programs and attack plans after he left the White House, then lied about it and obstructed law enforcement officers attempting to recover them. In a moment, I'm going to be joined by Slate senior writer Mark Joseph Stern to sort through that indictment, which was unsealed Friday afternoon. Later on in the show, we're going to go beyond our initial quick turn reactions and analysis of Thursday's big Voting Rights Act case and kind of get under the hood to understand what made it tick, what it did and did not achieve. And we're going to do that with our election law explicator in chief, Professor Richard L. Hassan of UCLA. But first, after Donald Trump live blogged a lot of feelings and all caps on Truth Social Thursday night about an imminent indictment, special counsel Jack Smith made this brief statement Friday afternoon confirming that the former president is being charged with felony violations of U.S. national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice in an indictment that was voted by a grand jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. And I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. The men and women of the United States intelligence community and our armed forces dedicate their lives to protecting our nation and its people. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice, and our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more and nothing less. The prosecutors in my office are among the most talented and experienced in the Department of Justice. They have investigated this case hewing to the highest ethical standards, and they will continue to do so as this case proceeds. It's very important for me to note 
that the defendants in this case must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. To that end, my office will seek a speedy trial in this matter, consistent with the public interest and the rights of the accused. We very much look forward to presenting our case to a jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. Our own amazing Mark Stern read the spots off the indictment, somehow managed to write about it, and has a lot of thoughts about it. So, Mark, let's just start with the fact that you and I have lived through <laughs> two impeachments and the Eugene Carroll trial and the Alvin Bragg indictment, and yet this feels different. Feels different? Feels different. It feels totally different. If I could capture it one way, I'd say... It feels like Mueller Day was supposed to feel. This is an extraordinarily damning indictment, far beyond my wildest imagination, and I have been following this case closely. This includes not only many charges for unlawfully concealing and willfully concealing these national security documents, which are very sensitive materials that include information about other countries' nuclear programs, our own nuclear weaponry, other countries' military activities, our potential retaliation if the United States is invaded, like war game plans. But Also, on top of all of that, a separate slate of charges for uh, obstruction and conspiracy, because as the indictment lays out, Trump allegedly directed his body man at Mar-a-Lago to remove most of the boxes of classified documents from the storage room where they were being held before his lawyer would go and look at them and respond to the subpoena that required turning over all of these documents. So Trump and his bag man allegedly came together and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sneak these documents out of the storage room. Okay, we're going to take everything that I want out of them. And then we're going to sneak them back into the storage room and not tell the lawyer, who is Evan Corcoran. And then we're going to make Corcoran feel like he saw all of the boxes. So he did his due diligence and that he turned over everything that was requested to prosecutors and to the grand jury. That was all captured on surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago. That was all done under the watchful eye of Trump's own security cameras. And so that is detailed extensively in the indictment. So are Trump's directives to lie. He told his bag man, when you're talking to the FBI, more or less, like, you need to lie about this. He instructed his lawyers to take out any damning documents. He engaged in some of the most scandalous behavior that you can imagine. And all of it was caught either on tape, in photographs, in text messages. It's all documented and laid out. This is what a criminal conspiracy looks like. This is what obstruction of justice looks like. So this is worlds away from the Mueller stuff, which all relied on sort of inference and pressure. This is just flat out a criminal conspiracy, and the pieces are all in place for a conviction. So we're not going to make any hard predictions here, but even if you set aside all of this, could he classify them with his mind stuff? The obstruction and conspiracy charges stand by themselves, and they are deadly serious. And just a note, Mark, because one of the slippery, slidey games we've been playing with Donald Trump 
for years now is mens rea, right? He couldn't understand. Right. He didn't know. It was all too hard. You know, he's joking. He's thinking. He didn't understand. Nobody told him. His lawyers told him otherwise. This feels like we kind of have vaulted whatever the mental state requirements are. It just feels like dude knew what was going on and he did it anyway. A hundred percent. I mean, stacking up these boxes in his shower, or at least a shower, so that he could go through them before his lawyer got a chance to and take out the stuff that he wanted. Because I don't know, he wanted to show it to the public. He wanted to use it to brag. I mean, it's very unclear. But the point is, as you say, there's no gray area here. There's no wiggle room. Like his state of mind comes through so loud and clear. And in a way that's surprising because this is a guy who has managed to squirm out of so many tough situations because he's good at indirectly pressuring subordinates into doing something. That was the story of the impeachments. That was the story of the Mueller report and the obstruction issue. But here, that's not it. Here he is directing this poor guy. I mean, he's a co-defendant. He now faces so much prison time. This is the bag man whose name is Walty Nada. And, you know, there's just like a very clear line from Trump to Nada to this criminal conduct all of which was undertaken for the express purpose of preventing federal prosecutors and law enforcement from discovering the underlying crime. I want to pivot for one quick second, if we can, to the Florida, Orida, Orida piece of this case, because there was some question about, yeah, why is this being filed in Florida? It had to be filed in Florida. The conduct happened in Florida, but it's put us squarely back in the lap. How is this possible of one Judge Eileen Cannon? And Mark, you're a Florida man. <laughs> That's not How good. dare you? How <laughs> dare you? I am a former Florida man. When can I shake off this badge of inferiority that attaches to me because of my birthplace? I didn't choose it, Dahlia. You are the best Florida man. Talk to us about Judge Cannon, please, because what are the odds? She is, of course, the infamous judge who oversaw Trump's initial effort to thwart the investigation into the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. She entertained that effort. She appointed a special master. She ran interference for Trump. She issued for the first time in the history of the Republic an order that purported to halt a pre-indictment criminal investigation, which is not something that courts have the power to do or have ever attempted before this point. She's very clearly in the tank for Trump, who is the guy who appointed her to the bench. So much so that the 11th Circuit, which is quite conservative, had to smack her down twice and remind her, ultimately, that she had no right to even hear this case in the first place and forced her to toss it out. And now here we are, and the indictment has come down, and it lands in her lap once again. Why is this happening? So, a couple things. First, typically cases are assigned randomly in a district court, right? But there are instances in which a judge who has dealt with a related matter in the past will be assigned a case because they have that history. So there's a chance that happened here. There's a chance it was a random assignment. And there's still a lot of ways that Eileen Cannon could lose her grasp on this case. And that could be just another kind of reassignment to a different judge. There could be, from Jack Smith's office, a motion to force her to release the case because there's actually some 11th Circuit precedent that says when a judge is clearly in the tank for the defendant and has shown a record of just not applying the law fairly, that they can be taken off of a case and it can be reassigned. So I, I wouldn't say it's like doom for this prosecution quite yet. 
But it is quite disturbing because, you know, obviously Cannon has big swings she can take. She can try to toss out the whole case, for instance. That can be easily appealed to the 11th Circuit. But there's so much else that she can try to do in the nitty-gritty procedure of a trial. So, you know, she could try to rig voir dire to help the defense stack the jury with Trump supporters. She could try to exclude evidence and testimony that's damning to Trump, disqualify witnesses who are favorable to the prosecution, you know, sustain the defense's objections every time and overrule the prosecutions. You can imagine all of these little ways that she could try to basically sabotage this case against the former president, all of which are very bad and very few of which could be immediately corrected on appeal. So I'm very much hoping that the case gets reassigned and that Judge Cannon will not be the one overseeing it. Can I just read a little bit of Mark Joseph Stern back to Mark Joseph Stern before I say goodbye until we have to retape this show in an hour when the next thing breaks? This is something you wrote today that I think actually was the gut punch for me. Just how serious Smith hit Trump with a variety of charges designed to punish suspects who attempt to thwart an FBI investigation. The marquee charge is, quote, conspiracy to obstruct justice, backed up by several charges of illegally concealing documents that are the subject of a federal investigation, as well as making false statements to law enforcement. A majority of these crimes carry a 20-year prison sentence and a $250,000 fine. Each is a felony offense, end quote. Uh, Like, we are way, way, way past the place where we can say, like, this isn't serious. These are, like, as serious as sin. And Absolutely. Is Donald Trump going to go to jail? I don't know. I do not know the answer to that question. I think we're in uncharted waters, right? He's the former president. He has this whole Secret Service troop all around him. But at the same time, you know, as you said, as I wrote, these charges carry a lot of prison time. They do not carry mandatory minimums, but the maximum sentence is high enough that the sentencing guidelines would surely require at least some period of incarceration, even for a first-time offender like Trump. This is a very different case from the Alvin Bragg prosecution in Manhattan, right, where it was the lowest level felony. And he basically got up from a misdemeanor to a felony by bootstrapping this election interference theory. Like all of that is, I think, weak sauce in comparison to what Jack Smith has just rolled out. This is the first time in maybe my entire career that I have thought maybe this guy is going to go to prison. I still think odds are he won't that there will be some kind of, at worst, home confinement situation. But looking at this indictment, yeah, again, like a a, a switch kind of flipped. And I thought, this could really happen. And that is just not a thought that has ever seriously crossed my brain before. Uh, I lied. My last question is my last question. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Kevin McCarthy, did they get the memo you got that says, like, maybe we should stop saying that this is a witch hunt and not true? Or are they going to go right down to the mat defending Donald Trump when there are photos, texts and video? Oh, yeah, they're going right down to the mat. I mean, I think my favorite response so far is from J.D. Vance, Republican senator from Ohio, who made this quip about how clearly Article 2 of the Constitution gives Trump the right to declassify his own administration's documents. Well, look, that's like a contestable point, but we can set it completely aside because the obstruction and conspiracy charges are not related to and do not rest on this weird question of whether Trump could secretly declassify documents, right? Like, even if Trump could somehow just shoot lasers out of his eyes and declassify on the spot 
after he left office and no longer held any executive power, even if that were somehow true, the, the obstruction charges would still stick. The conspiracy would still stick. Everything he did to try to halt the investigation and sabotage and thwart it, all of that would still stick. So I think these guys need to update their talking points. I do not know what they'll be. Probably something about how Hillary Clinton did it worse. But yeah, I mean, they're clearly floundering and trying to find their way towards something that'll land with the public and they do not have it yet. Maybe they'll say it was Hillary Clinton stacking those boxes in the shower. (laughs) Stay tuned. Mark Stern, you have been a lifesaver today, as with all the days. Um, Like I said, we'll probably have to retape the show again in three hours. But until then, so good to talk to you. Thank you for your big brain. Always a pleasure, Dahlia. Mark will be back a little later on for our Slate Plus segment, where he and I are going to try to answer some of the questions that listeners sent in over the course of the week. The Slate Plus listener mailbag yet again contributing to our sneaking suspicion that all of you are smarter than we are. If you are not a Slate Plus member, but you'd like to support all the work we are doing here at Slate, and you'd like bonus content and ad-free listening, you can find out more by going to slate.com slash amicus plus. And as ever, thank you for supporting the work we do. We are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, a deep dive on this week's huge voting rights case with the election law maven, Rick Hassan. And we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So now let's turn to the voting rights case uh, and bring back one of Amicus's wisest explainers, our own personal pocket voting rights shepherd, Rick Hassan, who has predicted pretty much every electoral meltdown we currently face, But like me, even he was shocked and awed by the decision that came down Thursday in Allen v. Milligan. He's still struggling to understand what it is that changed the chief justice's mind after a lifetime of trying to cabin the Voting Rights Act. And I am here to watch him as he struggles to understand it. Rick Hassan is a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and he is the author of the forthcoming book, A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. I should note that Rick writes like a book every six minutes, so I don't know how you have time to be on the show with us, but welcome back. It's great to be with you not talking about something really dire and depressing. Right. I mean, let's take a moment and just sit in our happy feelings. Okay, good. That was good. Rick, I think... Like me, you were braced for just a body blow to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And we can talk later about what happened. But I would love to do the history of this, which is oddly enough where the Chief Justice began his opinion with the history. Can you just walk us through 
essentially how we got the Voting Rights Act and then what happened in the early 80s after Mobile v. Bolden that got the young Reagan administration lawyer whose name was John Roberts so aggravated. Take us back, if you would, and get us to the 80s. All right, well, let's go back to the 1860s and the Civil War. Okay. End of the Civil War, the North wins, and Congress recognizes they've got to do something to give voting rights to blacks in the South and elsewhere, but especially in the South. And we eventually get what are called the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, which abolishes slavery, the 14th, which does a bunch of things, including uh, protects due process and equal protection against the states, and the 15th, which says no discrimination in voting on the basis of race. And the 15th Amendment passes, it's ratified somewhat at gunpoint in the South. And at first it's fine, and it actually enfranchises Blacks. But then we have this period that actually from the settlement of a disputed election in 1876, the the South uh, white supremacists come back into power, and the 15th Amendment becomes a dead letter. A man named Benjamin Jackson goes to the Supreme Court in 1903, I believe, and he says... I'm black. They're not letting me vote in Alabama. It's violating the 15th Amendment. The Supreme Court says, meh, yeah, we can't do anything about that. And so it's not until the civil rights movement in the 1950s, and then it picks up steam in the 1960s, that we get the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that starts protecting minority voters. And and one of the key things it does, besides sending federal registrars down to actually register black voters, is it says that states with a history of discrimination have to get federal approval before they make changes in their voting rules. This is in Section 5. This proves to be very important so that things don't get worse. And things don't get worse as the Department of Justice enforces Section 5, but they don't get that much better. And so Black activists and, and others try using the 15th Amendment to say, in court, well, you know, we should have a right to a fair chance to elect the candidates of our choice. Whites prefer one set of candidates, blacks prefer another, and the white majority is always winning. And at first, the Supreme Court is receptive to this, and then it shuts the argument down in 1980, a case called City of Mobile versus Bolden, where the court says all the 15th Amendment protects against is intentional discrimination. And so turns out that when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 65, it had to be renewed. It was renewed in 1970, 1975, and then it was up for renewal again in 1982. And Congress decides to write a statute that would reverse City of Mobile by creating a statutory right to bring what are called vote dilution claims. Uh, We don't have a fair chance to get our candidates of choice elected. And there's a big fight as to what Section 2 is going to look like. As you mentioned, John Roberts young lawyer working for the Reagan administration. His job is to shepherd through this law with the administration's thumbprint on it. And he's opposed, we know from memos, to a very broad reading of the law. So early on, he thinks, uh, you know, we shouldn't take race too much into account and shouldn't offer this kind of protection. Reagan loses that fight. John Roberts loses that fight. Congress passes the statute in 1982 providing in, in kind of very opaque language with a, uh, a proviso written into the law by a Kansas Republican Senator Bob Dole, called, we now call it the Dole Compromise, says minority voters get a chance to elect representatives of their choice, but there's no right to proportional representation. This is section two of the law that was at issue in the past week's case, Allen versus Milligan. And 
The question was, you know, was the court going to change the approach it has had to understanding what Section 2 does that's been in place since 1986 when the court decided a case called Thornburg versus Jingles? So that's uh, 130 years of history in five minutes. And I, without going too deep in the weeds here, and I know there's, we're just we're heading for the weeds, but can you help our listeners understand the distinction between discriminatory intent and discriminatory effects? Because I think that it's really hard to understand these cases unless you have some sense of what the showing would need to be. So if someone comes in, say, uh, a white uh, city council, and they say, you know, we're drawing the, these district lines to preserve white power. Just take a very obvious example. And they actually are able to do that. They were able to draw district lines so that only whites get their preferences elected for the city council going forward. Then you have a constitutional claim under the 14th and 15th Amendments. Discrimination on the basis of race, violation of the Equal Protection Clause. You've shown both an intent to discriminate and a discriminatory effect. Now, it's really hard to prove discriminatory intent because especially these days, someone who is trying to preserve or grow white political power is not going to say so. Occasionally they do, but it's really hard to prove it. And it is especially hard to prove it when you're allowed to say, we want to help Republicans get elected, even though in, in the South, we have more than two thirds of whites support Republicans, more than 90% of blacks support Democrats. When you discriminate uh, in favor of Republicans, is that discrimination in favor of whites? So it gets very complicated. It's hard to prove. The Supreme Court has a whole bunch of tests to try to figure out what discriminatory intent is going on. There have been a number of cases that have said you can't get those legislative records that might have the smoking gun in them. So trying to win constitutional litigation on voting rights, we have to prove discriminatory intent is hard. It can be done. We've had, for example, a district court found that Texas put its voter ID law in place because it intended to discriminate against black and Latino voters. That was a factual finding that was reversed on appeal by the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, probably the most conservative appeals court in the country. But you can try to make those claims. What Section 2 says is you don't have to prove discriminatory intent to win the statutory claim. It's enough to show discriminatory effect. So the basic idea is if you can show that there are a group of minority voters that live pretty close together, this is called the reasonable compactness standard, they live geographically close together and they have similar interests, and you have racially polarized voting, whites prefer one set of candidates, minority voters prefer another set of candidates, okay, now you're in the ballgame. Now you've satisfied what we call the jingles threshold test, and then the court looks at everything. Literally, it says the totality of the circumstances to determine whether or not there's a Voting Rights Act violation. These are not easy cases to win, but they're not impossible cases to win. And what happened in Allen versus Milligan was that a three-judge court made up of two Trump appointees and an Obama appointee, they unanimously agreed that under this jingles test, Alabama, which has seven congressional districts, six of which represent the interests of white Alabamians, was entitled to a second majority minority district in the so-called Black Belt counties of Alabama. The court found that blacks and whites prefer different candidates in Alabama. There was a group of black voters who lived close together. And you should, under this extensive jingles test, have the right to draw 
a second district where minority voters have a chance to elect their candidate of choice. And Rick, the only other thing that I think is just spade work that will help is we know after the 2020 census, Alabama redraws their maps. What is the relief that they are seeking? We get this three-judge panel order that says, oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> no, that's that's not going to work. New maps. We can talk in a minute about the fact that the Supreme Court enjoined the new map last February. But what would be super helpful is if you could explain what it was that Alabama was arguing for at oral argument in Allen. What did they want the test to be? That's right. So so what happens to the lower court? The lower court says you've got to redraw your district to create the second district where minority voters can elect a candidate of their choice. And the Supreme Court puts that on hold. We'll come back to that stay. And Alabama files its brief and it we have oral argument. It's one of the very first oral arguments that Justice Katanji Brown Jackson sits on. You and I wrote about her comments about what the purpose of those Reconstruction Amendments were uh, at the uh, oral argument in that case. But Alabama comes in with such a radical argument that even Justice Alito doesn't buy it. And Justice Alito has never found a Voting Rights Act plaintiff that he supports. And Alabama says, you only should have to draw that second black district if when you looked at everything but race, you'd end up drawing that district anyway. It's a race-neutral approach to a race-conscious statute. And it's pretty clear that what it would have meant is a bleaching of Congress. We would have had a situation where Congress would have looked much wider. And the kind of representation of diverse interests that we see in this country that was helped by Section 2, much of that representation would go away. And it was kind of a breathtaking argument, one that even at oral argument, none of the justices were willing to go down that road. And so the argument ends up being something different. In fact, Justice Alito previews what he ends up writing in his separate dissent in the Allen case, that he's going to tweak this jingle standard and find a way for the plaintiffs to lose. That looks a lot nicer than doing what Alabama was going to do, which was essentially to kill Section 2 in Albany. So this is, I think, what I described on Thursday's show as John Roberts, like, booping Alabama on the nose, right? Like, you put it um, more loftily in the New York Times. Milligan put the brakes on the judicial assault on Section 2 without expanding voting rights. It reaffirmed the weakened jingles test. Given earlier rulings and the court's emphasis in Milligan on the Dole compromise, the ruling will not lead to a flood of new districts where minority voters can elect candidates of their choice, end quote. So we get a booping, but it's not clear that we get a capacious expansion of Section 2, what we do is sort of bolstering the status quo. And I wondered if you would unpack a little bit that last phrase in that New York Times piece, where you said this is not going to lead to just a watershed change in how minority voters elect candidates of their choice. This is a modest change. It is a narrow opinion. What's going to happen as a result? Well, the first thing to note is that the law didn't stop with jingles in 1986. The courts decided literally dozens of Section 2 cases. I could teach a course just on Section 2 and fill a whole semester. I don't have time to do that because we've got other stuff to cover, but there's a lot of law out there. And in the last dozen or so years, the Supreme Court has been shrinking 
the Voting Rights Act, Section 2. In fact, I, th- I think I came on your show a couple of years ago talking about the Bernovich case, which was another Section 2 case, opinion by Justice Alito. That's absolutely horrid. And so what this does is it freezes the post-jingles, weakened jingles standard in place. Now, there are some people, including my friend and colleague Rick Pildes, writing in Slate, who believes that this will lead to a modest uptick in Voting Rights Act cases that will be successful. That's possible. I'm a little more skeptical than he is. He thinks that new technology is going to help. I think that the better way to understand this is that it's going to stop the bleeding. So maybe the most important part of the opinion is not just, you know, the extraordinary is ordinary. We're just applying jingles. Nothing to see here is the part of the opinion where five justices on the Supreme Court say Section two of the Voting Rights Act is constitutional. Something you'd think wouldn't be a big deal, but let's go back to 2013 in Shelby County, where John Roberts wrote an opinion that essentially killed off that preclearance provision in Section 5 that we talked about earlier, and that made it much easier to pass discriminatory voting rules. So used to be, like, for example, when Texas passed its tough voter ID law, that they couldn't put it into effect because the Department of Justice would block it. With Section 5 gone, it can go into effect, and you have to bring this expensive and difficult litigation. Now, that litigation was successful against Texas's voter ID law on discriminatory effects, even though the Fifth Circuit rejected discriminatory intent, right? It's not clear that that case would come out the same way after Bernovich. So where we stand right now is that the Voting Rights Act lives to fight another day. It means that we're not going to get this full removal of you know dozens of Uh, members of Congress, members of state houses, school boards, city council. I mean, this goes to every kind of election in the country where there's significant minority representation and racially polarized voting. Preserving the status quo is a huge win. You know, I was in Las Vegas this week. And, you know, when you push playing blackjack, you tie with the dealer. That's a win. You didn't lose your money. That's how I feel about what's happened in this case. We pushed. That's a huge win. You know, as you're talking, Rick, one of the things that occurs to me is so much litigation now happens in the shadow of what you think is going to occur at the courts. And the chilling you describe is real, right? Because voting rights, I mean, certainly after Shelby, and then you move from Section 5 to Section 2, and then after Brnovich, it's like there's not even any point we're going to lose. And in losing, we might make things worse. And it is really interesting to hear what you're saying, which is... Maybe things don't change a lot, but voting rights advocate have some sense that they might win. And that's a sea change. I mean, that's not just a push in some sense. It's a belief that maybe you have five people who have your back. Is that overstating it? You can tell me that I should never go to Vegas because my pie-eyed optimism will make me lose. I think it's slightly optimistic. What I'd say is I didn't speak to a single person after oral argument in Allen versus Milligan, who thought that the plaintiffs were going to win. And so this is a huge relief. It means they can keep doing what they're doing. There is still this weakened Voting Rights Act. So it's not as though this is going to lead to a radical realignment of power in this country. But the status quo, which Congress put in place in 1982, and which Congress reaffirmed in 2006, protecting minority voters so they get a fair chance to elect their candidates of their choice, that continues. 
That continues in an opinion written by John Roberts. John Roberts, who wrote Shelby County, who was Reagan's point man against expansion of Section 2, who's been in the majority in all of these cases, like Brnovich and another case in 2018 called Abbott versus Perez, which was a Texas redistrict case. He's been on the side of shrinking voting rights. And here he is, and Justice Kavanaugh, right? It takes two conservatives on this court now to join with the three liberals to uphold anything. And so staying in place, preserving the status quo is a heck of a lot better than what I thought we were going to see, which would be many members of Congress that people are used to seeing on TV losing their seats. People who give voice to the interests of those in minority communities who do not have the same opportunities. And you know, Let's talk for a second, before we turn to why uh, Roberts did this, why does this matter? Having a seat at the table, being able to make your speech, go back to Tennessee, those black legislators who were thrown out of office, they didn't have that much power because it's a white Republican dominated legislature, but they at least get to speak, they at least get to say their piece and make their claims. And so even if it doesn't lead to a proportional amount of political power, because the Voting Rights Act doesn't guarantee that. Roberts underlined that point. It's something. And it's a lot better than nothing. Yeah, I I said any day that the Supreme Court doesn't punch you in the mouth is a really, really good day. That's where we are. I wonder, before we get to the chief, if you could talk about Justice Kavanaugh, we mentioned that the court stayed this decision earlier, which seemed to signal you know, that Kavanaugh was on the side of the conservatives. Roberts was really clear in that shadow docket order that he was mostly mad that it was happening on the shadow docket. Before we get to Roberts flipping, can we talk for a second about Kavanaugh flipping? So in order to get the stay, and what the stay did, let's be clear, what the stay did is allowed Alabama to hold another election and elect another white Republican in Alabama. So it mattered for 2022. And you can't go back and fix that. This will work for 2024, presumably, but not for 2022 in terms of the district lines. Court issues the stay and says, keep the new lines that Alabama drew for the after the most recent census. And let's uh, see what happens in this case. And Kavanaugh writes and says, I agree that we should put this on hold because this is coming too close to the election. He's applying what we've called the Purcell principle from a an earlier case that says, don't make changes too close to the election. It was a totally disingenuous and bad application of the Purcell principle because it had never been applied to redistricting before. And there were months and months and months before the district's elections were going to be held. But nonetheless, he said, I'm not saying anything on the merits. I'm just saying it's too close to the election. So Kavanaugh was not really inconsistent with what he said. So that's okay. The part about Kavanaugh joining the majority opinion, the one little shadow that's cast over this day of joy is Kavanaugh says, you know, I agree with the court that we've in the past said that the Voting Rights Act Section 2 is constitutional, and and I'm signing on to that. But Alabama didn't really raise this argument in the lower court that time has passed and Section 2 is no longer constitutional. It's the equivalent of Shelby County in the Section 2 context. He says, that's an argument for another day. So, you know, there's a little shadow. There's a, we'll see that lawsuit. Ed Blum, you know, the guy behind Shelby County and behind some of the affirmative action cases, he might bring that case. So there's a little shadow. I'm not convinced that uh, Roberts or Kavanaugh would, would accept that, given what they said in the majority opinion. But there's this little shadow. So that's Kavanaugh. 
he's a surprise too, because in oral argument, there wasn't any sense that he was siding with the plaintiffs. The only ones who were speaking up in favor of the plaintiffs were really the three liberal justices. And you know, there was a lot of skepticism about Alabama's particular argument, but not necessarily about their position on ultimately whether the second district had to be drawn. Let's take a quick break now. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. All of our weekly and bonus emergency episodes of Amicus through this month of June are available to all of our listeners as part of Slate's Opinion Palooza initiative. You can get up to speed with all our latest Supreme Court coverage at slate.com slash opinionpalooza and help support our work when you become a subscriber to Slate Plus. You can find out more about the benefits of membership at slate.com slash amicus plus. Okay, so here's where we must turn to John Roberts, and you and I are going to channel our friend Joan Biskupic, and you are going to explain to me, as you did in your New York Times article, why it is that you think at the end of the day we get John Roberts institutionalist, John Roberts who really makes a point of saying, in some sense, this is about stare decisis and precedent, and he's going to stand up as a bulwark against a court that's willing to just shred precedent like a crazed Tasmanian devil. There is a lot in this opinion that suggests that Roberts is both trying to shore up public opinion about the court and also the suggestion that actually stare decisis and lower court findings matter to him. Look, I cannot tell you how shocked I was about John Roberts not only joining this opinion, but writing it. Let me point to three things. First, in 2005, I went to the Reagan Library, which is not far from my house, and looked at those papers that John Roberts wrote for the Reagan administration. It was clear, you know, he said at his confirmation hearing, I'm just an old country lawyer. You know, I was uh, I was just doing Reagan's bidding. <laughs> kind of parallel to Rehnquist uh, writing that thing about Plessy versus Ferguson that we wrote about, uh, you know, just doing Justice Jackson's bidding. Pretty clear, you know, John Roberts was no friend of race-based remedies in the voting context. So 2005, I, you know, I wrote this thing, John Roberts, very iffy support for voting rights. 2007, Roberts writes the famous line in a affirmative action case involving schools called Parents Involved, where he says, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. That is, race-conscious remedies are themselves discriminatory. Then comes Shelby County in 2013, where Roberts says, history didn't stop in 1965. Things are better in the South. And, you know, we don't need this federal oversight of voting rules anymore. And Justice Ginsburg in her dissent says, you know, discrimination on the basis of race 
is not a problem of the past. It's a problem of the present. That's what she says in dissent. And Robert signs on to all of these restrictive Voting Rights Act decisions after Shelby County, including that Burdovich case. So then to see John Roberts write, history did not stop in 1960, echoing himself, not citing Shelby County remarkably, and says, basically, there's still racially polarized voting in Alabama, even though the 15th Amendment doesn't bar this activity, the 15th Amendment gives Congress power to expand voting rights to cover discriminatory effects. That is not the John Roberts I know. I was, you know, pleased as punch, but shocked beyond belief. And, you know, usually I'm, you know, I'd say about, you know, 80, 85% predicting what the Supreme Court's going to do in their voting cases. This is the biggest shock to me, I think, of any case that I can remember that I've watched closely. So what explains it? I think there are three possible theories. You know, one is John Roberts had a change of heart and now sees the need for race-based remedies. Nah. Nope. Mm. Uh, number two, as you mentioned, he's just applying precedent. And, you know, this is a case where he's just applying precedent. Now, here's why that doesn't work. Number one, Alabama wasn't coming in saying we win under existing precedent. They were saying change precedent. And number two, in that stay order that I mentioned a few minutes ago, where Kavanaugh says, you know, it's all about the timing. Roberts dissents. Roberts says, I agree that under existing law, under the Jingles test, the plaintiff should win. But Jingles is so complicated. There are so many uncertain questions. We should hear this case so we can sort it all out. And then he comes in and just starting to say, I'm just applying Jingles. So like, what was that all about? Which brings me to what I think, I have no smoking gun, is most likely what's going on, either consciously or subconsciously. John Roberts is trying to preserve the court's legitimacy in the face of Lots of resistance to its rulings in cases like Dobbs involving abortion, in cases like Bruin involving guns. And what I expect is coming within the next three weeks, which is going to be a ruling that says the affirmative action in education violates the Constitution. I think that's going to be a six to three decision. I think that's where Roberts wants to put his energy. He wants to say minority plaintiffs don't always lose at my court. They sometimes win. And so Section 2 has already been weakened. So this is not going to cause an expansion of voting rights. It's going to preserve the status quo. Kavanaugh, of course, has left the door open to killing Section 2 another day with a new theory. And so it didn't cost that much. That's really cynical. Maybe Roberts is not thinking about the court's legitimacy. Maybe Harlan Crow is not in the background. And, you know, of course, it's Justice Clarence Thomas who's writing the dissent in this case. Maybe all of those things are not swirling in his head. Or maybe he does not aware of it, but I don't see the John Roberts of the past having signed this opinion, much less having written it. Yeah, I also, uh, I have to say, I think that, as you noted, two of the judges on the lower court panel who, you know, he he cites the extensive record, the findings of fact, two of the three are Trump appointees. And there's a way in which this is somewhat you know, a win for judicial supremacy, which is also on brand for him when he's not, you know, willy nilly overturning lower court judges. So it does feel like this is of a piece with this larger Rehnquistian project of, you know, judges know what's what they know better than other branches. I do a little bit find myself wondering, and you mentioned it, that, you know, you and I wrote 
after Justice Jackson, you know, very early, I think her second day on the bench, intervened in this case, putting on a virtual clinic about how insane it is to claim that the Reconstruction Amendments are race blind. There was some chatter on Twitter suggesting that that's what flipped him, that having the first black woman justice on the U.S. Supreme Court just take you to school about how inane this theory is might have moved him. Does that have any salience for you? Look, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I've seen some speculation that Thomas had the majority opinion and lost his majority. Maybe. Maybe Justice Jackson wrote a really fiery dissent, draft dissent, and Roberts didn't like that. Uh, Possible. My sense is that Roberts has been on the court since 2005. He's pretty comfortable in his own skin. These justices, all nine of them, they don't lack for healthy egos. I don't think that it, it is likely that. You know, Roberts is not a hardcore originalist the way that some of the other justices are. So if Justice Jackson was coming in with, here's what the, you know, the Reconstruction Amendments really mean, I don't know that that is really responsive to what Robert's concerns are. So, uh, you know, it's possible. We don't know. My theory about uh, the affirmative action case, well, we'll know in three weeks whether that theory is right or not. That is what looms over this. You and I are always waiting in June. June is always, you know, when are they coming out? Is it going to be this day or that day? And you pre-write your stories and you wait and you figure out what's going to happen. It's not a surprise to me that this opinion came out on June 8th. We're like three weeks away from the end of the term. So now there's going to be, you know, weeks of the Roberts Court's not so bad. It, It supported these voting rights plaintiffs. Like that helps to soften the blow. It's almost like leaking the Dobbs opinion to prepare the country for what's coming. Right. It it rejuvenates the, it's a 3-3-3 court with all these moderates at the center narrative from two terms ago. I do, you know, I'm listening to you respond about Justice Jackson and remembering how uh, much John Roberts is actually inflamed by Sonia Sotomayor tweaking him on race in prior cases. So I think I align myself with your view, which is that being scolded about being not woke is not a thing that generally moves the chief justice. Um, I actually think it would be counterproductive. Right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. We've seen him punch back. And he's a prickly um, fellow. Well, on race, he's he's not just prickly, he really bitterly resents being called out. And so, I, I mean, in some sense, I will say, I think that what Justice Jackson did at argument and may have done in that imaginary draft dissent would have not been in your face. But I also think it's not clear to me that that is a tactic that works with him. I do think I want to pull on one last thing you said, and then I'm going to ask you a pragmatic question. The one last thing you said is, you know, we have gotten used, you and I, to terms in which, you know, you lose one, you win one. The court, like, very carefully maps out what is going to be the big thing and what is going to be the little thing. And I I forgot last term what that felt like, because last term, there was none of that. We just had, you know, our friend Leah Littman's YOLO court, where it was just always losing and nobody cared about trying to balance the messaging. I, I think I agree with you that we are in for 
probably not great stuff on affirmative action. I actually think the same theory, you know, that the 14th Amendment prevents any taking account of race is going to invalidate the Indian Child Welfare Act as well. Like, I think that theory is going to live on. And I think there's going to be just big blows for other, you know, LGBTQ rights and others. My question is, hovering over all this, is the fear that this signals something big in Morvey Harper, that the court that was going to kick it away is now like, okay, now we're going to have three weeks of people saying how liberal we are so we can do something big on the mayhem that is the independent state legislature theory. I confess this is my darkest dark thought of the week, but does this signal anything to you about the court maybe having some interest in looking at more seriously? I like when you're more pessimistic than me, because uh, that's that's rare. Uh, I do not think that this portends anything about Moore versus Harper. Moore versus Harper, just to remind people who are listening, is about whether state legislatures get to set election rules in congressional or presidential elections without interference from, say, state courts applying their state constitution to protect voters. It's a very complicated case, but what you need to understand on a non-technical basis is it shifts power to state legislatures, and more importantly, it shifts powers to the Supreme Court to decide when state courts' interpretation of laws goes too far. Moore versus Harper has a technical problem, which is that the underlying ruling that is the basis for the case has now been mooted by an election in North Carolina that changed the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has overruled its own case. And there's all kinds of technical questions about whether the Supreme Court even still has jurisdiction over this case. The problem is the independent state legislature doctrine hung over the 2020 elections in a very ominous way, like it could give the Supreme Court a way to decide a presidential election. And I think the justices recognize, and some of them have even said, we've got to resolve this before the next presidential election. So there's these cross currents. So one thing we might see is that the court may dismiss the case. And then a number of justices are going to weigh in and say, yeah, the case is dismissed. I write to add my views so that, you know, to guide the lower courts kind of thing. Or, you know, the court might try to use some kind of doctrine to, to say something. From my listen to the oral arguments and more, the most extreme version of the independent state legislature theory did not gain traction there, just like Alabama's arguments and Allen did not gain traction. I think what we're likely to see if there is a ruling from the conservatives endorsing the doctrine is something like Bush versus Gore redux. And just basically what I mean by that is, the court's going to say that when a state Supreme Court issues a ruling in an election case uh, involving a federal election, that is so out there that you could say they're not really applying the law, they're making it up, that the Supreme Court can step in and second guess and make it up over them. That's not quite as bad as a ruling that says the state courts don't even get to apply their state constitutions to these rules. I, I think I wrote in Slate that that would be a bad but not awful decision. So, between the fact that the court may not reach the case and the fact that the most extreme versions seem to be rejected, I'm a little less panicked about Moore versus Harper than I was before. And there's also a possibility that the court is going to dismiss the case and grant an Ohio case that raises the same issue and will go through this whole thing all over again. Maybe they'd even hold oral argument early in the term or even in September, as they've sometimes done and try to get an opinion out before 
the presidential election is in full swing. Any day on which Rick Hassan and I are jockeying to see who can be more cynical and pessimistic in the face of a massive win for voting rights is a great good day in America. Rick Hassan is professor of law and political science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Coming in February, A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. He is also my personal guide through the quagmire that is voting rights. Rick, it is always a treat, and I know how slammed you've been in the wake of Alan. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us. It's always a pleasure, and uh, looking forward to sharing more good news with you about voting rights in the future. LOLs. Ha, ha, ha. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and questions and Slate Plus members who want Mark and I to tackle your big existential doubts and small, weedy queries. You can just write to us at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate, and Ben Richmond is our Senior Director of Operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus next week. Until then, take good care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.